out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastor. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be an author. Indeed, I know, the suspense and excitement. Yes, I recently caught up with Annie Seleski, who's done a book titled Duran Duran's Rio. And this is part of the 33 and 3rd series. Um, I've got a few on David Bowie, Diamond Dogs and Low. It's a brilliant series. Anyway, this is on Duran Duran. And uh, their 1983 classic. I hope it was 1983. It was the early 80s. So this is the interview with Annie, who was in America, New York at the time. It's already been well received, and I do believe it's on Bloomsbury Books and available from all good bookshops, as well as online. It might have even sold out. Anyway, this is the interview, and after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was probably the reason for writing it, and also, was she born when this album came out? Annie, tell us everything now. You know, I was, it's funny, I was born in 1979. And so I, I was born, so I've, I've always, I'm a little bit older than Duran Duran, the band. Well, actually, no, I take that back. I'm not older than Duran Duran, the band, because it existed, you know, in a different form. I, I'm older than the golden age lineup, let's call it that way. Yes. Um, but, you know, I came to them in the 90s. Um, in America, the wedding album was so huge. And I grew up uh, just outside of Cleveland, Ohio. And Duran Duran was always really, really popular here. So they got a lot of radio support. And so the wedding album was everywhere on MTV and also on radio. And then of course, because there was modern rock stations, they were playing a lot of eighties music. They played a ton of Duran Duran too. So I came to kind of Rio and the wedding album around the same time. And so it was a very kind of, you know, which are two so different records, but you know, they were all kind of jumbled together. Yes. So that was my introduction. Your introduction. Cause it would have been, would it have been around that time they brought out their classic compilation or collection called Thank You. So that was, it was just before Thank You. I know I got Decade, I think. So that was, that was like my introduction, that really good greatest hits record. I picked that up at some point and the, that which was basically, you know, the distillation of, you know, the high points of the eighties. Yes. So that was, that was, that was like my big, I found a tape of that that I made when I was a kid. Because I do remember the, doing an interview with the guy from the Lilac Times who seemed to be the singer for Duran Duran for a very short period of time. Stephen Duffy, wasn't it? Yeah, he, he was he was in one of those late 70s lineups that were so, you know, it was John and Nick that were the kind of the, the steady ones. And then they brought in Roger, but everything else was sort of up in the air until uh, Simon and Andy joined. Yes. So doing that. So just just give us a little bit of an idea of the process of putting this together, because it's obviously it's one of those things. You often have great ideas when you're late at night and you've been drinking too much and then you wake up in the morning and go, really bad idea I hope no one's remembered that but um, you obviously did wake up and think no I'm going to stick with this kind of uh, project so when did that start? So I've had I've wanted to do this book since the mid 2000s um, I've actually I pitched it several times to the 33 and a third series in that time I think I found my first pitch was 2007 actually so I've always really thought that the record has a really just interesting backstory I mean besides the fact that it's an amazing record that it's you know one of those perfect records from front to back, and then you have the artwork. So there's those elements. It has an interesting story in that, like in America, it didn't hit right away. It took a really long time for the album to become successful, and it took a really long time for Hungry Like the Wolf to become successful. And you know, and that's hard to believe now because Duran Duran are so big. But they had a, it, it was a really kind of winding uphill battle for the album to become successful. So I always suspected that there was a really really good story there. 
Um, and as it turned out, I was right um, in terms of, you know, so I, you know, I stuck with it and I did research over the years. And so that was kind of my starting point was putting together a good proposal. And then once it was sort of, um, once it was accepted, I basically, you know, dug in and started researching. You know, I, I approached the band to be interviewed. Um, I did a lot of archival magazine research, both UK and US magazines. Um, you know, I did deep listening, of course. And so it was, it was a lot. I, I enjoy doing research. And so this was, this was a project I could really sink my teeth into. Yeah. So how many years is that sort of from the initial kind of green light to, right, let's start writing to, wow, I can hit, save, send, that's it. <laughs> so that was, I found out I got, it was early 2019 is when I found out it was accepted. And I think the final, final draft I turned in was October. Over 2020, right. so that was what is so. What is that? That was well over a year and a half, and so. But I mean, obviously, I'd been thinking about this for a decade, so I was like ready to dive in. But you know, it's just you know putting things together and getting interviews and just you know my first draft of the book was so long; it was way too long. I had to start editing too, and so there's a lot that goes into the final final draft. But I would imagine, yeah, it, it is quite hard, isn't it? And did you have many people giving you help on the editing and sort of tidying it up front? No, that was all me. That was all you. That's amazing. Because cause I find it kind of interesting because I, you know, without giving too much away, but I was born, you know, 64. So I'm now in my mid late 50s. So the 80s was kind of my decade. And I, I, I was a bit too young for the punk period. And even post-punk wasn't something I really can sort of say that it was something I really got. But it was the 80s that I was particularly keen on. And um and funny enough, I was an indie kid. I went to the root of the indie kid. So I wasn't really into the sort of that light sort of new romantic world that was Duran Duran and then the Spandau Ballet battle. And then in between there in, with that, you had, you know, people like Sade and Soft Cell and then, you know, Depeche Mode came up. So I suppose I looked at them with a little bit of suspicion, actually, because there was also the introduction of MTV and these very glossy things and in this country 79 Margaret Thatcher gets into power and suddenly you know we had the Falkland War and there was this whole political thing and then we had the minor strike and there was all this angsty stuff from the left and then Duran Duran came along with this fantastically beautiful cover which I do admit is amazing but then you know the whole image of the band is quite you know when you're a bit sort of alienated and grumpy and a bit sulky like I was and neurotic and <laughs> they didn't resonate with me. But, you know, at the same time, I could see they did write fantastic songs like, you know, Save a Prayer. And I do think that, you know, The Chauffeur is a great song. So it is kind of interesting at the time finding it like, oh, no, they're not going to be one of those bands. But then appreciating a lot of this music might decades later. So it's kind of it, it's kind of nicer to sort of come back sometimes to to um, to see and actually read these kind of articles and sort of give more credit and appreciation than what I did at the time which I have to say probably wasn't a lot <laughs> I think you really nailed the kind of the you know a why the band you know uh, some of the mainstream music press in the UK especially kind of looked askance at the band you know because you know there was all this very serious stuff going on you know you had then you had the specials and you had Billy Bragg and the Smiths talking you know all of the political and then you had Duran Duran on who was basically like we are not going to be political you know we don't want to I found a lot of interesting archival interviews where they're basically saying you know we, we don't want to leave leave kids astray um, you know they had a very a different aesthetic than a lot of the bands going on 
And you know, in America, what's so funny is that they were perceived so much differently. They started out on college radio or basically indie radio here. And their first two records were heavily, um, you know, supported by that. They were kind of a cult band. They were kind of a dance band. You know, they were on like the cool alternative station next to the Smiths and Depeche Mode. So it's it's such a different perception depending on where you became a fan of the band. Yes. And, well, I've, I've yeah. noticed that with a few American musicians. I think it was Brendan Flowers from the, the Killers who mentions all these British bands and Duran Duran are in there. And you're thinking, how did that... You can't like all that. You can't, they can't be in there. And I think, of course, you know, they don't really care. They don't put it into that cultural, political context that we, you know, I was doing. So it would be a very different thing. They would listen to it for what it is, not what it kind of possibly represents, you know. That's exactly it. And I think Brandon Flowers, I mean, he's one of the biggest ambassadors for Duran Duran, I think, you know, he is just such a huge fan. And, you know, some of the, the killer songs, you're like, yeah, you hear it. It's great. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, that was one of the more illuminating things when writing the book was sort of kind of putting that in perspective and putting, giving that context around people. Because I think a lot of people in America didn't realize, you know, that, you know, that England was so, the political element was, did have an effect on how people, you know, saw Duran Duran. Um, you know, just, I mean, yeah, so that was, that was one of the more interesting things that I think some American fans might be like, that's really interesting. Yes, well, I, you know, it, it, I suppose at the time, and, and it's kind of easy to either forget it or then look bad, back at things with the rose-tinted sunglasses, because after the Falklands, then, like I mentioned, there was the miners' strike, there was this kind of, and then something called the Red Wedge movement, where all these kind of, you know, like Billy Bragg, the Redskins, Jimmy Somerville from um, Bronsky had sort of put together this kind of tour going around the country trying to get the young people to get political and vote and get Thatcher out and thought does politics you know does pop music work you know and it and it's like no it doesn't actually it doesn't change people's political it doesn't change the political landscape at all and then we get confused because at the same time then we had you know Bruce Springsteen coming in with his kind of big biceps and doing Born in the USA so it's it, you know the 80s is kind of a fascinating time because um you know, it might have been politically a bit odd at times, unlike now. Uh, it's so simple. Um, but, but the music was fantastic. I mean, you, exactly. had to, you just look back. <laughs> Every year there was like these amazing albums. So when you were, you know, was there ever a fear of analysing this, this album so much that, A, you might meet the members of the band and think, oh, they're horrible. Or you just, oh, God, I just never want to hear another one of these records again. So it's, I, I tell people that I, I was very relieved actually after finishing the book that I still like listening to the record. Like I will still like willingly say, I want to listen to Rio. Rio sounds really good right now. So I'm relieved about that. You know, I, I could tell I'd listened to the record so many times over the years that I kind of suspected, all right, you know, I've listened to it enough. I think I'll be okay. I won't be too tired of it. Um, and luckily I had interviewed some of the band members in the past. Um, I interviewed Nick Rhodes a few years ago and I interviewed John Taylor in the past. Um, you know, so I had a pretty good sense that, you know, they, they were, they're good people and they're, you know, and they're very good interview ease. Um, and so luckily I was like, okay, you know, I, I wasn't going in cold and I've read so many interviews over the years too. You know, you can, you can tell as, as, you know, I've been a journalist for 20 years and you can tell the people that are putting on airs and the people who aren't. And so, you know, and, and, you know, and, and so Duran Duran, I could tell would be fine, you know. Yeah. And also, was it a case, did did they look back at this album and that period quite differently to what you, of how you were reading their interviews at that time? I mean, how did they sort of look back at this period as well? You know, I think that's a really interesting question, because I think when you did read kind of, you know, contemporary interviews with them in 81 and 82, because they were so in the thick of kind of having to defend themselves from being, you know, uh, you know, in, in England, you know, from being, you know, apolitical and, you know, they really, they had to 
you know, there was a, I forget which magazine published it, but it was like, here are the misconceptions about Duran Duran. Let's have the band riff on them. And there were like all these things. And so that was so much that dominated the press cycle around Rio was them having to kind of, you know, defend their existence in a sense. I would imagine, so I think I, I would imagine if you read the NME, yeah. you know, archives, it was probably. I think it was that. <laughs> there was Steve Sutherland, the writer, liked Duran Duran, and he defended them. He wrote actually a really positive review of Rio, and he, and he did a profile on them. And later on, he he basically had to say that he got like you know people in in the office were basically giving him you know were like really like they were kind of making fun of him for the positive review. So he even had to defend himself for you know for liking Duran Duran. Yes. Um, but it was a lot of but you know you forget they were so young at that point. That was so interesting too. And going back and reading the interviews is, I mean, they were, you know, Nick Rhodes was 19 when they made Rio and, you know, the, the Simon was 23 and he was the oldest. So there were these kids that were, you know, basically seeing all these things for the first time. And so it was, and a lot of the, because they were sort of, you know, boy band, you know, they were, you know, teen pinups. A lot of the interviews weren't very substantial. You know, journalists weren't necessarily asking them probing questions. Yeah. When I talk to them now, they have the perspective. And I think that was, you know, the most gratifying thing is that, you know, because they've had almost 40 years of distance from it and they've seen how Rio kind of impacted their career and then also, you know, kind of set them on a course. They had some just really lovely recollections of it. I mean, obviously there's the nuts and bolts of, oh, we're in the studio and here's how this happened. But just in terms of what Rio meant, they had mm. a lot of like really good perspective and just really good, you know, observations, you know, John Taylor, especially. Um, you know, but he, he's he always been very philosophical, I think. And so he, you know, he had some, you know, here's what this meant. You know, he remembered listening to Bowie records when he was a kid, you know, and like in, you know, Rio, he, he understands that Rio meant that to a lot of teenagers too. And so it was very cool. It was, it was very nice talking to them at, at you know, from, from that distance to get their perspective now. Well, it is quite, it is quite amazing how important or in how much music means to the people. Because I, I did an interview last night with a guy who was in a band called Bitch Magnet, who were from the, you know, oh, the yeah. 80s period. Mm -hmm. And um, he got very emotional, actually. <laughs> it was quite amazing. And um, both about when he was at that age where he felt really, you know, young and he, you know, the world felt very difficult and someone gave him a cassette and it had, this, you know, Sex Pistols on one side and um, other Dead Kennedys on the other. And he just, he said that kind of didn't quite save his life, but it had a huge impact. And then the band did their thing, as you normally do realise, you know, most bands last for about five years, and then they reform. And then when they did these few dates later, a few decades later, both the members of the band were able to sort of sort out a few issues that they had when they were younger. And then people from all over the world came to see them and said, God, you wouldn't believe how much your, how much your music means to me. And I think he just felt kind of overwhelmed, like, oh my God, I can really see that we did this and we really meant it, but I didn't realize it meant that much to everybody who listened to it. I mean, it wasn't a huge audience, but yeah, he, he was quite emotional about the whole experience of realizing what they had created and what it meant for other people. And for a younger person, and I sort of, you know, there might be older people as well, but generally it's the music when you're 14 to 16 that really resonates with you. And I always remember Lemmy from Motorhead often talking about Little Richard and David Bowie always talked about Little Richard and then saying, well, you can't be that, that young person again having that kind of in experience when you're when you're 30 
it's not the same as when you're 14, 16, and you're hearing Little Richard for the first time going, oh my God, this is, this is it. This is going to change the rest of my life. So I can see John Taylor talking about Roxy Music, David Bowie, all those kind of films that they watched and all the kind of influences. You know, it does, it does have that impact. And for a lot of people, Rio must be that, that kind of moment that kind of saved their life, so to speak. I mean, I, I've, I've gotten some, since the book is out already in America, I've gotten some really lovely messages from fans who've read it and said some honestly really emotional things about, hey, this is what this record meant to me. And, you know, this is really, you know, this is how reading the book, you know, made me, you know, like I had someone write to me and said, I understand my wife better because I, I read your book and I understand, you know, why she likes this music so much. You know, I had, you know, people saying I'm sharing this music with my kids and, you know, this means a lot to them, you know, so it's, it's been, it's been really, I'm honestly very surprised. It's very gratifying, but I'm very, I'm very touched, honestly, by the people saying, you know, this, this brought me back. I remembered being a fan, you know, I revisited the record and like they've rediscovered a part of themselves that maybe had, you know, been put on a shelf or, you know, as, as you get so busy as an adult, you kind of forget that that childhood wonder of hearing that record that just, you know, expands your universe yes. and really, really is that record for people. It really is. And, you know, and it's been, it's been really moving to hear people kind of share that, you know, because that's so important. You know, I think, uh, you know, eighties music and new wave, you know, sometimes gets a bad, you know, and I wouldn't necessarily consider Drandra and new wave, but eighties, you know, starting off in the eighties, um, you know, that music meant a lot to people. It's a lot more serious than, you know, and, and meaningful than I think it gets credit for sometimes. Oh, absolutely. So. And it, what's also interesting with a band like Duran Duran um, is that a lot of the bands I've interviewed for the 80s kind of show that I do normally have a five-year narrative. They get together, they have 12 months honeymoon period, they get the single. There was a DJ called John Peel. He'd give it a play. They get John Peel's session, the first album, things going well, do a tour around the country. And you realise Britain's tiny, so you can just do these little tours. You know, every city and town has a little alternative night. The second album, not so good. If any American, uh, British bands tour America, they come back and break up. It just destroys them. Whereas Duran Duran does have this great longevity and the, and the core of the band, are still doing it and are still, you know, making new music. But also, they've obviously lost one of the key members of the band. Has did you sort of feel that that's kind of had quite an impact on how they feel the members about looking back to that period and realizing that one of them didn't sort of slightly make it through the trenches? You know, I don't know. I mean, the way uh, the way Andy came up in the interviews with the band members um, was basically them saying, "Okay, here's what he brought to the record." And obviously, and honestly, everyone had really very insightful and really lovely things to say about what he kind of brought to the Rio period um, in, in terms of, you know, that he, he was, he was the musician. I mean, he was the one who, you know, in the seventies toured, you know, he was, and he was the rocker, you know, he liked, you know, you know, any of the, like the big, I think he saw the Black Sabbath Van Halen 78 tour, the legendary UK tour, you right. know, which about summed it up right there. Yeah. Like he, and he liked, you know, um, I think I think Nick Rhodes said that he was Jeff Beck and Nick was Brian Eno, and they combining those two, that's where the musicality kind of intersected, which I thought was such a brilliant quote. Actually, and Andy actually Andy might have said that. I, I can't remember who said that, so I need to look. Uh, someone, in, <laughs> someone said that I was like, that was a, that's really. I think actually no, I think Andy said that. I'm sorry, so scratch that. Um, but Andy said that, which I thought was so brilliant because it's true. You know, he he on Rio brought. And going and that's what really stood out to me going back and listening to the record and really listening is that he had such an interesting bag of kind of musical tricks to kind of bring to the table. And even in, in that whole early, you know, the I guess what 
five, because I guess 85 is when everything sort of, um, you know, split apart for the first time. That that whole like first era is so interesting. It's so distinct from every other Duran Duran era, even kind of the reunion albums, which I actually really like. Um, because they were all young, they were all young and just kind of making it up as they went along. And so, yes. you know, and I think, you know, yeah, you look at Duran Duran's catalog and it's, you know, because they had Warren Cucurillo in the band for a while. And he's also a very, you know, hard rocker like Andy, but in a very kind of different sense. I mean, he played with Zappa and he was in Missing Persons. Um, they've always had that rock edge and depending on who the player is, like you mentioned Dom, you know, it's always been, it's always been slightly different over time. And it's, 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 and now with Graham Coxon, you know, playing on the record too, and I'm, I'm a huge Blur fan. So that was a thrill. That so, will be, yeah, that'll be an interesting, but yeah, I mean, as, as, a, as, as, you know, like I just meant, had slightly said before, you know, most bands do have a five-year narrative and, and you realize that just, because in that period, no one's doing anything else. It's like the music 24-7. There is no kind of, oh, I'll just go and have a break here. It's like they haven't had a holiday. They haven't had any any change of scenery. And also, I think mentally, God knows how they're coping with it. You know, there must just be so much to process but not have time to process and have a proper conversation with each other or themselves and, and say, just let's calm down. You know, this is going to, this isn't going to last, but how are we going to kind of cope with the transition? So, and, and at that stage, you know, British pop had really, I suppose what was quite interesting, I mean, I must admit, I was a big Smiths fan and sort of 83 to 87, the Smiths were so big and they broke up. And then there was a real change in, in that kind of alternative world and ecstasy came along. And then the next wave of 16, 18 year olds wanted their, their sound and their generation. They didn't really want an old band who'd been around for five years, heaven forgive. So they want their kind of new bands who are just kind of going on it. And it was kind of, you know, I suppose Primal Scream and, and uh, Happy Mondays and, you know, the rave culture. And then you've got the grunge. And then you, after that, you get the, the kind of the Britpop. That's a really simplistic idea of music. But there is these kind of like definite things. And around around you realise there must have been that period where they're just going, yeah, this is amazing. Everyone loves us. And it's like, Oh God, everyone's moved on. What happened there? You know, it's like, oh, by the way, the, that sound, that producer, they're a little bit, it sounds a bit dated, mate. You know, it's like, oh, really? You know, so it's, it is tricky. You know, I must admit, you know, they, they did a good run, but to cope with that next stage is quite tricky. And you're right. I think, you know, when you mentioned, I think during, um, I think it was the very late 80s into the very early 90s is when they struggled, I think, the most, you know, at least at least in America. I'm, I'm sure, I don't know if it was the same in the UK. I'm guessing it probably was. Because I mean, Notorious, which came out in 86, sounded so, you know, modern and that sounded so contemporary. Like that was kind of a good, you know, all right, we're kind of a new band configuration. It was kind of a strong thing. And I think they had, I think their late 80s stuff is getting appreciated more. But yeah, I think at the time it was like, what's going on? I mean, it's kind of, it's amazing that they have had all of these different life, you know, basically lives. They're like cats, you know, because <laughs> of what you said, you know, there's like, you know, in, in America, grunge was happening in the early 90s and they came out with a power ballad, Ordinary World, you know, it's like, and it was a success, you know, and they, they've really, you know, managed to sort of, you know, for whatever reason, the alchemy, you know, and gain new fans and keep old fans and keep doing things probably because they have kept moving forward and they haven't, you know, they're like, we're going to try something. If it doesn't work, okay. You know, but they're always willing to be creative and try things. And because yeah, like there's no reason. I mean, Duran Duran very easily in, in 1985 when, you know, they kind of did all the side projects, that could have been it. They very easily could have said, we had a good run, we're good. But they didn't, they came back and they kept going and kept striving and kept, you know, and kept moving forward and saying, no, we belong in this mainstream conversation. 
but that's that's a really kind of an interesting through line of Duran Duran's you know 40 year career yes I mean staying power you know in music is quite amazing but um but just also just curious I mean was there anything doing the research and doing the book that you found out that you know was quite surprising or or, I mean, or was it kind of yeah. everything you know you'd already sort of gauged it or was there anything that you've you particularly thought thought oh my god that's fascinating I mean, I think what's, well, one of the things I thought was, I found that was very interesting was that in America, so MTV came on the air in America in August of 1981, and um, Rio came out in May of 82. MTV added Hungry Like the Wolf in rotation in the first week of July, 1982. Right. And, which is like, you know, the record really wasn't doing much at that point. It was sort of, you know, it, it charted very, very low. It was sort of hanging on the billboard charts in the, the second half. So MTV added that early on. The, the single itself didn't become a hit until early 83. So MTV was playing the video for like six months before it really took off in America. You know, I think everyone always, you know, talked about, oh, MTV, you know, really helped Duran Duran. But when you actually see, you know, that date and you realize how early that was, because Duran Duran that summer was still, they came to America that summer and they were doing anywhere from tiny clubs to sort of opening slots on like big stadium shows. And then they opened for Blondie on, on big shows too. So they were still kind of a young, hungry band trying to make it. And they were big in the UK by that point. But in America, they were still this like scrappy new band. who was like, oh, they released their second record. Okay. You know, trying to do in stores and really trying to gain fans. And so I think that was really it. Cause you, you kind of, I kind of knew that, but when you actually kind of look and do the research and see while wow, they were actually still pretty small then, that was, that was very striking to me. Um, yeah. And, you know, just looking at how the first record, uh, which came out in June of 81, really set up Rio, that was really striking to me. You know, they really kind of set the stage for Rio pretty early on, whether that's they kind of, you know, worked with, they they teamed up with Malcolm Garrett on the first record, who, you know, did the, the Rio sleeve. They teamed up with Colin Thurston, who also worked on Rio. Um, you know, basically they toured, they, you know, they really, and in America, all, you know, they had they had dance floor hits in 1981. You know, they were pretty much a cult band, but they weren't necessarily 100% unknown. So I think that was just really interesting is just seeing how much what they did in 1981 kind of set the stage and how for how Rio kind of unfolded. You know, that that was, I guess that was, that was probably one of the more interesting things that I learned too. Yeah, so it's interesting you mentioned that MTV because I know I was a bit surprised when I was in America a few probably decade now, <laughs> decades. I couldn't believe Flock of Seagulls, I ran to you, was so popular. And then someone said, oh, actually, when MTV started, they had no video. So they, and, you yep. know, they had this one, so they just chucked it on. They like they got played all the time for about a year. So, oh, right, because pretty in this country, it's like a flock of seagulls. You, you know, it was all right. right. But I <laughs> <laughs> and they're British. Isn't Mike Score British too? Yeah, right? it's a strange, yeah. 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 And, but, you know, it's like, it does sound all right, but I was just a bit, thought, God, that's a bit obscure. And then I sort of found out that, MTV, you know, we're just looking like, give us a video, someone, we've got to fill up all this content. So um, there you go. So, so look, going back to the book, I guess, I'm guessing here, I sound like Darren Brown, it's, it's been going really well, you know, sales wise. It has, honestly, the first printing in America sold out right away. Um, it was, it was actually sold out like the first weekend the book was on sale, which was astounding, honestly, and just like really gratifying and exciting. Um, you know, I think that I've, I've told the UK printing is different. So, you know, I, I'm not privy to any, you know, sales and things like that. 
um, there yet, but yeah, it was, it's been going extremely well. And it's, which honestly, you release a book, you never expect that. You never know what's going to happen. You know, I mean, books, you know, books are like music these days, you know, I mean, you can release a record and, you know, it's a great record and no one ever hears it, you know, so. Yes, you know. I know. I know it's always tricky, isn't it? Figures, you know, you think, you know, optimistically, you think, oh, it could be this. And then you think probably half that number and, and then don't get too disappointed. But so, so what sort of other, <laughs> just curious now, what sort of sales, have, what, what have there been in America? I mean, they told me, I'm not actually sure I'm allowed to say that um, publicly. <laughs> That's fair enough. Just but, yeah, but no, it's, um, I mean, it's like beyond my wildest dreams, honestly. Like, you know, cause like I said, I, when you write a book, you don't, you don't expect to get rich. I'm not getting rich, no. but you know, you don't expect to, you know, yeah, th this was, uh, this was so much a passion project for me too, just because I've loved the band for so long and I've loved the record for so long. So honestly, even if it didn't sell any copies, I would feel good that I could like hold it in my hand. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I mean, uh, doing yeah. a project and getting through to the end must be nice. And I, I'm hoping or guessing they're going to be touring America very kind of in the next 12 months. I hope so. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've been like looking at Hyde Park tickets and like almost trying to pull the trigger potentially because I saw the cure at Hyde Park a few years ago and it was so much fun that I'm like, oh, maybe I should come over for their 40th anniversary, but I don't, you just don't know. So I haven't done it yet because, no. you know, I don't think we can even, I'm, you know, I'm in America. I don't even think we can travel to the UK at this point. No, I don't think, I don't think we can go, but I've always wondered why Duran Duran have never had a residency. And when they say residency in Vegas, it's not year, it's not like Elvis. I mean, people do five dates and it's a resident residency, but I don't know why they haven't been sort of in Vegas for a bit longer doing more Vegas dates actually. You know, they actually do. When I, so I saw them and that was the last Duran Duran show I saw was in Vegas. I flew out there for my birthday and they did two nights. And I think it was their, that was like their third and fourth shows of the year in Vegas. They did, I think, U, uh, US shows in like the start of 2019 and then near the end. And they did do a lot. They do a lot of shows there, but not at the same time. Right. You know, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like that's not, they're so they're still so we're we're a, we're a young you know they still have that mindset we're a young band we go on tour we're striving forward you know in a residency I think I could see them saying yeah you know that's for people who are kind of looking back on their career and being nostalgic and you know and that's just not them you know yes. I mean you, and I love the new record or the new single I think the new single is fantastic it's so Invisible. different it's not what I expected and I'm just like wow you know they're trying to kind of push push the bar forward and above you know which is admirable because bands 40 years on don't do that you're right they do you know say all right we're going to go to vegas and we're going to do a greatest hit set i saw def leppard's residency and i love def leppard they were great but that that's like you know the band it's like we're going to do a victory lap but it seems like duran duran would rather do a victory lap touring the world than in one place yes which, and, well, in funny, and in a strange and funny sort of way they, they probably will be a bit like the rolling stones always wanting to do those tours and doing a new album yeah. And um, yes, well, you know, I mean, the Renaissance don't do a lot of new albums anymore, but yeah, I could imagine they will get that little bit more kudos and credit. And I, and books like yours will sort of help that kind of re rewrite the slight history. I mean, not in an all, you know, 1984 sort of way, but you know, just like, actually it was better than we would gave it a present. Angsty kids like me who were just all a bit, you know, moany in the UK, you know, listen to the Smiths. We'd probably go, actually it's better. I should just listen to it without any prejudice anyway. 
I was a Moni teenager listening to the Smiths in America after after they broke up. So I, I that was that was me in my bedroom, you know. So waiting was, away. Yeah, you know, it was time time. You know, that's a timeless thing. So I, I hear you. Yeah, but you're right. I, I I looked askance at pop music as well in the '90s when I was you know a Moni alternative kid. And, you know, and, but I always liked Duran Duran because, you know, like I said, in America, they were alternative, you know, they weren't necessarily a pop band, but it's, it's, it's very, but it's very funny. You're right. How time kind of changes things because I think they're definitely getting a lot of credibility. And it's, it's, it's interesting to me how many younger kids are really into Duran Duran. And that doesn't happen with a lot of 80s veteran bands, which I'm sure you've seen. I mean, people talk all the time, you know, like U2, are there young U2 fans? I don't know about that. You know, I mean, like some bands like Queen have like a huge loyal younger fan base, you know, probably because of Adam Lambert, but Duran Duran, like there are kids who are like, yeah, John Taylor's the coolest bass player on earth. Like, you know, their music sounds awesome. Their keyboards sound rad, you know? And so there's like, there's that element. So that's been very cool to even just to kind of research and see, because that that's a real testament to, I think, you know, the band and their sound that there's still that fascination with them too. Yes, and and just kind of last part, I do. I mean, the, there was a very obscure little documentary on the Nightingales, Rob Lloyd and the Nightingales, which was presented by Stuart Lee, and they came, you know, they came from Birmingham in the late seventies, and uh, John Taylor suddenly just appeared in it, you know, because there was a story about what happened, and no one quite remembers it exactly right. So everyone's got a bit of a false narrative to tell a story, which is interesting. And John Taylor's there, and, and you think, oh yeah, they are. You know, he was. They were a cool, guy, you know, bunch of kids really doing their thing, wasn't it? And that, I've seen the various documentaries that we have on the BBC, BBC Four on a Friday night, and it's like, okay, you know, they are. They are cool. I just couldn't. I, it was the yacht. The yacht did it. Just <laughs> did so much to my poor brain. So there you go. I was just jealous. Christ. <laughs> I I've heard that you know I someone in the book was like you know you just wanted to be them you know like you could never like they had that but it was so funny is that they were still like they weren't necessarily global superstars when they when they they almost like manifested that fame you know on that you know on, on the yacht you know they were you know they were taking a break after you know releasing Rio and then they went on this yacht and they basically you know you know projected this lifestyle and they made it happen it was nuts Yes. So I like that Nick Rhodes said in the Guardian once that he was like, you know, my idea of a boat is like docked. He was like, I'm just not, he's like, I'm not a, I'm not a boat person. So, which you can, you can kind of tell from the video, which is very sweet, actually. Yes, that's right. And I suppose a few years later, I just remember they did their Live Aid show, didn't they? Which I think Simon hit a really bad note, didn't he? Yeah. Kind of, and like, that's, which that, was like, I mean, that's so embarrassing. I mean, I feel, you feel bad now in hindsight because people, you know, because that was, you know, people were really hard on him. That was actually, I guess, one of the other things that I, I saw in the press that people like America especially could be really nasty to him. And it was like in, in, in the modern parlance, you're sort of like, wow, that's just, that really wouldn't happen because it was sort of unfair, you yeah. know, comments weight and you know and, and things like that and it was just not so, cool. so with the live aid moment was that the time and i might be thinking of a totally different band but was it the time when they hadn't really been speaking to each other and they just literally had to just turn up and, yeah. and wing the gig so it was duran duran who who yeah. had the okay let's let's just not make eye contact let's go through the numbers we're saving children in africa <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think you know it's funny because i think there were all sorts of things i think they were even you know, because I think, you know, they did Arcadia and the Power Station, you know, the, oh, the yes. whole band was sort of, and because the Power Station was already sort of, I think they actually played Live Aid, I, if I'm, I'm about 95% sure, 
that the power station also played Live Aid. And so they were already an ongoing thing. You know, and Arcadia was sort of an ongoing thing. And Duran Duran were supposed to do, like, I think I found some press thing that they were potentially supposed to do this big, like a pay-per-view with maybe Culture Club in America. Right. Never happened, never happened. You know, cause I think everything just sort of, they, they kind of took that break to do their side project stuff. But yeah, Live Aid, I believe was the last kind of performance of the, the five until like, you know, the early 2000s. Yes, well, you know, having done so many interviews with bands on, on you know, five years, you think, well, you've done really well. <laughs> yeah. They packed a lot in those five years. Like you look now, you know, as an adult, you're like, how did you even do that? I mean, their schedule was punishing. They released all those records and it was, it was a lot for any band, you know, especially, uh, you know, it was just, I can't imagine the pressure. I mean, you can only do that when you're young. You can only do that once. And yes. then you have to be like, all right, I need to, dial things back and look at my lifestyle a little bit and you know, chill out grow some vegetables and watch things yeah there you go but look yeah. thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this this has been amazing i do love the you know i think it's a great book and i've really enjoyed thank reading you. it and um all the best and i'm really i expect your inbox and it must be very nice to get after all those months and years you know doing it suddenly having a bit of a buzz around it so um it's good Seeing it retweeted by Duran Duran's, you know, Twitter account must be very exciting. <laughs> it is. You get a little thrill every time. You're like, oh, it's like my favorite band. Look at that. You know, it's like it's like a little hello. You They've know? retweeted me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It never, you know what? It, it any author who says, oh, that gets old, it never gets old. You know, when you have someone, you know, you admire who like, you know, notices you. And I, I'm so grateful that the band also, you know, their social media has promoted it and really helped support it because it, it's made so much of a difference. And it just that. That means a lot to me too, you know, because I, you know, I work so hard on that and, you know, I, you know, you want to make the band proud, you know, you want to do, you want to do right by them and write something that, you know, does them justice. And so I'm, I'm very grateful for their help and support too. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, look, thanks a lot for this. And um, yeah, and when I put it out, I can always send you a copy of the link with the, you know, with the interview and, and I'll, awesome. um, I'll, you know, ping it around as well and, and put it on the radio. So that'll be fantastic. But thanks again for your time. And uh, thank you. All the best for the rest of the year. And let's hope they play, you know, well, Vegas for a couple of nights anyway. Okay. <laughs> look, take Bye. care. Cheers. Bye-bye. I'm hitting end. There you go. I love leaving those last bits in just for the fun of it. Because they're so fumbly and slightly, well, uptight in English. And that's me. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Annie Seleski for giving me the time for that interview. On the book, Duran Duran's Rio from the 33 and a third series. If you want... Um, to know any more information, Google it and buy it from your local bookshop or online. It is a classic. It's a brilliant book. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, do C86 Show. Keep it positive, otherwise don't bother. And also, these have all been archived, and there's a lot of them. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.